Thank you, ladies, all three of them, Beth, Lindsay, and Lexa. You can see where all the musical talent goes in the Quinn family <laughs> to all the girls and uh, none of the boys. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We have the privilege of turning in the Word of God to an experience during the earthly journeying of our Lord Jesus Christ with the woman at the well. Listen as I read John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Last Lord's Day morning, we talked about the first 19 verses and how Jesus is in this encounter with the woman at the well and how we could actually learn some transferable principles about how to evangelize others from what Jesus is saying here and from what John the Apostle has captured in this encounter with the woman at the well. It's interesting that after I finished the message last Sunday morning, uh, someone, uh, let's call her the woman at the well 21st century, approached me just after the message and said, Pastor, I'd like to share something with you. And here's what she said about her own testimony. It's entitled, The Girl from Samaria, a modern-day woman at the well. Quoting John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here's what she says about herself. I gave my life to Christ at a young age as I was raised in the Bible Belt of Charlotte, North Carolina by my grandparents, a Methodist minister and his wife. 
I remember wanting to marry Jesus when I was five years old. As a teen, I thought of converting to Catholicism so I could be a missionary nun. As time went by, I experienced spiritual drift and became quite worldly. I was married five times and divorced four. Even though I taught Sunday school, brought my children to church, and prayed that my husbands would attend with us, I felt detached from God. One Friday, while driving home from a Christian woman's luncheon, I thought of the Samaritan woman and created a poem. I'd like to share it with you. They call me the girl from Samaria. I've heard that I'm brazen and bold. But listen, my friends, these are not my sins. I only need someone to hold. I went to that well in Samaria. The sun was high in the skies. I just filled my cup, and when I looked up, I gazed into my master's eyes. I've been loved by men I've heard, and all were lies, but for your word. Jesus, lover of my soul, I come before your throne. Behold. She ends by saying, On the 101 freeway, with tears in my eyes, I committed my life to Christ, thanking Him for being my one true love and for His grace, mercy, and infinite patience. Is that a perfect application of the message last Sunday? A modern-day woman at the well. And indeed, she likens her own life with so many similarities, as you can tell, with this woman that John captures. And you remember last time, I gave you four of these transferable principles about how to evangelize like Jesus. You remember what they were? The first was context. Context. Jesus was following the Father's will. The Father wanted him to go through Samaria. And you know that often, because the Jews didn't have dealings with the Samaritans, uh, they had great conflict with them, that most of the Jews would actually avoid the country of Samaria altogether, but not Jesus. Because the context was that God wanted him to travel 40 miles on foot on the Roman road to get to this place in about a day and a half with his disciples and then tell his disciples to go and buy some food in town, the town of Sychar, so that Jesus could be sitting at a well at just the right time that the woman at the well would be coming by. That's the context. And then secondly, a connection. A connection. And that's another transferable principle for us. That is, if God brings us contextually to a place of standing before someone and we know that we ought to be obedient in talking about the word of the gospel, the first thing we need to do is make a connection with them. We need to make a connection with people. We need to find out who they are. We need to begin to discuss things with them. Uh, we may have already established that connection. They may be a friend. They may be a family member. They may be a workmate, a schoolmate, whatever the context is. If you make a connection with them, then you have done well. But there's a third C that we looked, up, looked at, and that's communication. 
communication. In other words, you don't just have a context and you don't just make a connection, but you actually need to communicate about Christ. You need to talk about him. You need to talk about the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus. Our witnessing exploits to people mean nothing if we have a context in which we're making a connection, but we never really communicate about the gospel. And then fourthly, from last Sunday, we talked about that last C, and that's confrontation. Confrontation. And that's really where Jesus picks up here when he says in verse 16, after she says, I want this kind of water, he says, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And she perceives him to be a prophet. She realizes that this man has the kind of knowledge about her life, including her sin. And Jesus, in communicating the good news of salvation in him, he talks very clearly about the concept of sin with her. He, in a sense, says, you are a serial fornicator. And you've had these men, but they're actually not really your husband And the one who is with you now is not really your husband. That person is actually the husband of someone else. So he goes to the matter of her sin. And he talks to her about her sin. And likewise, when we're witnessing to others, whether it's a long-term relationship or it's someone we've just met, you can, by the very context that God providentially brings you, stand before them, make a connection with their lives, communicate the truth of who Jesus is, and also, at some point in the conversation, talk to them about the nature of sin. The fact that God knows that we, as persons, from Adam, the very first man who was ever created, until our own lives, and by our own nature, and by our own choices, we are sinners too. Now that's a part of the gospel, right? You can't know the good news of salvation in Jesus unless you know about the bad news, our sin, our wretchedness, our evil. And Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter and confronts this woman about her sin, and in this case, about her immorality. You say, well, I'm not Jesus. I don't have omniscience like he does. I wouldn't have known that information. So, my answer is, generically, all of us know about our sin. We know that we are sinners. We know that we're fallen in Adam. And we also know that we have committed our own sins, whatever they may be. So talk generically with people about the matter of mankind's sinfulness. And then ask them, do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe that you've sinned against God, your creator? And of course, you'll often get a variety of answers. But sometimes, and if God is preparing the heart of that person, you might even hear something like this. Yes, yes, I know that I'm a sinner. I understand that. You might even have someone, if they're really ready and responsive to the gospel, because God is bringing them to a place of understanding themselves, you might even hear someone say, and I'm very, very sad about my sinfulness. I want to deal with my sin. How can I do that? 
And you remember I talked to you last time about the spiritual alphabet or what we might call the evangelism alphabet where even if they're not responsive at that point to the gospel, you're not responsible to bring them to the gospel savingly. Only God does that. But you can bring them alphabetically from an A to a G. Maybe from a a G to a P. And even if you're not the person that ultimately prays with them to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you're just laying the foundation. You're just moving them along. And then God may very well bring someone else in their life later on. So you want to be faithful with with that you bring them to. And you must bring them to the fact, the reality, that sin separates men and women from God. Sin destroys our relationship with God. Sin brings reproach on the holiness of God and on the person of God, the character of God. But that there is a solution. And that solution actually brings us to the next of our outline points. And if you look in verses 20 to 26, we'll see it. Let's call it Christ. Christ. We've seen context, connection, communication, confrontation, and now Christ, Christ. Look at verse 20. She attempts, does this woman at the well, to divert, I think, away from Jesus talking about her sin. Because she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In other words, what this lady is doing is moving away from a focus upon herself and her sin, and she's diverting the attention, or at least attempting to do so, away from that to something entirely different. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't return immediately to the matter of her sin. He's graciously willing to answer her question. And how does he do it? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain, looking at Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. By the way, uh, the yous there are plural. You and your people. And when she talks about you saying in Jerusalem, that's the place we ought to worship, she's saying you Jews. And he says, no, you Gentiles, you Samaritans, you do not know how or what you're worshiping. And we Jews, even though Jerusalem is not ultimately the place for worship, it's where that place for worship is now on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. But a day is coming when you're going to realize that salvation is from the Jews. And notice what he says in verse 23. But the hour is coming, and don't miss the next phrase, and is what? Now here. here In the person of Jesus himself. In the person of the Christ, the Messiah. From now on, in the midst of my ministry, including my ministry of going to that cross, in the midst of hanging on that cross, and in the midst of dying on that cross, I tell you that that inauguration of a different kind of worship 
has begun and I'm here and it's right now and when the cross work is complete no longer will men like you the Samaritans believe you ought to look at Mount Gerizim and worship nor even should the Jews be looking to Jerusalem the physical location I'm telling you the kind of worship that I'm speaking of is not a place it's not a location it's a person And it's me. And through me to the Father. That's what he's communicating. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What does he mean by spirit and truth? Does he refer here to the Holy Spirit? No. Does he refer here even to the human spirit? No, not particularly. When he says here that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, he's simply meaning something like this. The Father is looking for spiritual worshipers. Not those who are attempting to either worship a place or a location or a mountain or anything else. What we're talking about is spiritual worship. And then he says, secondly, and also truth worship. God the Father is seeking true worshipers. And those who are those true worshipers are those who worship on a spiritual level and those who worship on a truth level. Those are the only two acceptable forms of worship. And we might even combine them if we could and say something like this. The only acceptable worship is through Christ and it is through the spiritual, truthful worship that is acceptable by Him and through Him to the Father. You say, how do we know that this is talking about spiritual worship? Notice what he says. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What kind of people? God is spirit. In other words, He's not a body. He's not a, a, a physical person. He is a spiritual person. He is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You must worship like Him. He's a spiritual being. And you too are a spiritual being. And if you worship in the right way, you're worshiping that spiritual being as a spiritual being. And you're worshiping truth because God is truth. Now not worshiping truth as though it's an inanimate object. You're worshiping a person. And that person is none other than, and this is our outline point, Christ. Christ. You're worshiping Christ. Now the woman doesn't get it. In verse 25 she says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Notice the tense, future tense. He who is called Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah. When he comes, whenever that will be, he will tell us all things. She doesn't understand. Just like if you backed up and you heard what she said regarding this living water, she says, I want this spring of water that wells up. I want it. And he's referring to the well of eternal life. He's referring to the spiritual dynamic. And just like that, when she doesn't understand that in the first part of our narrative, 
She doesn't understand this either, and she doesn't understand that that Messiah, who she says will come, I know he's coming, and when he comes, he's going to tell us everything. You're telling me something, but he's going to tell us all things, and when he comes, he's going to unfold for us whatever this spiritual worship you're talking about, whatever this truthful worship is that you're talking about, he's going to tell us everything. And what does Jesus say? Verse 26. He said to her, I who speak to you am he. Ego eimi. I am that Messiah. Folks, it couldn't be any clearer than that. And you know that transferable principle for you and me is so clear. It's so evident from this text. Speak to people about Christ. He is speaking to her about himself. You speak to people about Christ. Witnessing is not successful. It is not the point of your relationship with people unless you talk to them about Christ. It's of no avail. It won't be successful. You won't see anybody coming into the kingdom unless you speak to them about the Lord Christ. About Jesus. About the Messiah. About who He is. And about what He did. And he's telling her, look, right now, in the form of worship that you're undergoing, and even my fellow Jews are experiencing, you in Gerizim, they in Jerusalem, there's going to be a day coming, and it's inaugurated right now, right here, right in what I'm telling you, that I'm the Messiah, I have inaugurated my ministry, I'm going to inexorably go to that cross, and when I die on that cross, it's going to change everything. You remember that... That scene when the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross is dying and he says it is finished and it says that that curtain in the temple was rent rent how? From top to bottom. Not bottom to top, top to bottom. Which meant that when it was ripped, it changed forever the form of worship that God had previously commenced. Changed it for good. Because Jesus is now the locus of the center of our worship. That's why, as simple as this service has been this morning, we came, we sat down, we prayed, we sang songs, we gave of our money, we're listening to preaching. It's that simple. We don't have to have ornate statues. We don't have to have water. We don't have to have the sense of candles and of uh, kneeling benches. And in and of themselves, none of those things are wrong by themselves, but it is for the purpose that people often get involved in those things and they lose sight of the person of Christ. They lose sight of the reality that He's the one who is the center and focus of our worship. It's not those things. It's Christ. And that's what He's telling her. You think that by going to Mount Gerizim and worshiping in that location is the acceptable form of worship. And my fellow Jews believe that going to the Mount of Olives and worshiping there is the acceptable time and place and agency of worship. And I'm telling you it is not so. It is me. And it is through me that God is seeking true worshipers. You know, this could be something that you could tell Not just someone who has a woman at the well background, but anybody. You could tell them, here's what worship's all about. I want to read John 4 to you. I want to tell you what it means. And I want you to see with me 
that the way to worship God truly and the way to worship God spiritually, and those are the only acceptable ways to do it, is to worship God the Father through His appointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. You've got to talk about Christ. You've got to mention Jesus somewhere in the conversation. And you've got to tell them about what Christ did and who He is and His atonement for sin and His satisfaction for the sacrifice that was entirely necessary due to our sins. You've got to talk about Christ. And then, fifth, uh, sixthly, let's call it come. Come. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about coming to Christ. That's the next outline point. Coming to to Christ. Look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. So this is a little bit of an interlude in the story. This is John the Apostle weaving this account through his interaction with the woman. And this is a little bit of an interlude. And in verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Remember, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But no one had the gumption to say to the master, the rabbi, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? It just wasn't done in that day. But remember what we said last time. And that is, Jesus is not bound by social conventions. There was nothing in the Word of God that said He was violating that word or that law or that statute or that commandment in talking with this woman. And this woman had a great need, didn't she? And the need that she had was salvation from her sin. She needed deliverance from all of these relationships that were impure. She needed to know about this Messiah. And can you imagine the the utter absurdity of it all from eternity to eternity if in the social conventions of the day Jesus is standing by this well and she comes up and as the Messiah sent from God, he says, no, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you, you're a woman. The utter absurdity of it. Here is a soul, a living, breathing soul, a person, regardless of the gender. And she has a need. And really, that's the transferable concept for us. We see people all around us who have needs, right? And we want to meet their needs. In fact, one of the exciting things we want to do is to talk about Not only what God is doing around the world, but what God is doing here. You know, if you study the book of John, you'll find that it's almost exactly parallel with the book of Acts in terms of the the center of our evangelistic efforts. It starts, of course, in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus started, started his ministry. And then it moves into Judea and Samaria. And then it moves to the uttermost part, right? You've read the book of Acts. You see that this is actually true as it works its way through the book of John. It's this same pattern. And that's the same for us. We start in our own local locale, right? Jerusalem. And then we move out into the outer environs of Judea and Samaria. And then we move to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what God has called us to do. He's called us to look at our own area, our own spheres of influence, Who can we speak a word of the gospel to who are right next to us? And one of the things we're going to do based upon some of these very principles in John chapter 4 is that we are going to have an upcoming, I'll give you the details about it later, an upcoming seminar on how to witness effectively the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and we're going to talk about canvassing our neighborhoods. And then we're going to have an opportunity for us to go out, probably on Saturdays, and we are going to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ and invite them into this fellowship. What was interesting to me as I studied for John 4, and I was actually sitting at my desk on Saturday morning when a knock came on my door. Who do you think it was? The Jehovah's Witnesses. And I had a very brief, we had to go somewhere, I had a very brief conversation uh, with a woman and her grandson. And she identified herself as a Jehovah's Witness, and I said, yes, I'm very familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And of course, in my heart, I was thinking, Lord, this is like four minutes before we're supposed to take off. I was going to have with my wife uh, a time for brunch with my son, Logan, and his new girlfriend. And we were meeting her, in a sense, for the very first time, getting to know her. And I said, okay, Lord, you've given me about four minutes here. So what can I say in about four minutes? And at one point, she gave me a couple of little sort of brochures to look at. And she announced who she was. And uh, she said, I think you'd really enjoy reading these. And I said, I'm very familiar with this. I said, for many, many years, my own mother was a Jehovah's Witness. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. I said, until she affirmed the deity of Jesus Christ, that God is in Christ and that Christ himself is God. And she said, well, I don't know about that. I, you know, I'm just sort of not understanding that you, you believe in the Trinity. And I said, while the word Trinity is not in the Bible, it's all over the Bible. And she said, well, I just don't seem to understand that, how you get one and one and one is, is all one God and how... Uh, God the Father is praying, or, or God the Son is praying and prays to the Father and how both of them can pray to each other and both of them be God. And I said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that. I do have to go. But I said, the idea of the Trinity is that there are three persons in the one God, not three gods. And that was obviously what she was confused about. And it just reinforced to me again, beloved, that this is an opportunity for us to explain the true gospel to people, to tell them about the true Godhead, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to spend time talking with people who are, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, deceived and confused about who God is, about what salvation is, about who Christ is, about what sin is and sin's cure. And so we're going to be doing that in the weeks and months to come. We're going to train ourselves. We're going to have one of our brothers from Grace Community Church, a good pastor friend of mine, Mike Riccardi, come and speak to us. He's the local outreach pastor at Grace Community Church. And he's going to come and he's going to give us some helpful teaching and then some hands-on opportunity for us to witness in our own spheres of influence. That's our Jerusalem. And then in our Judea, Samaria, we're going to go out, any of us that can, into the environs of Ventura County. I know it's tough out there. Ventura County, it's rough. But we're going to go out and we're going to be involved in ministry, including evangelism and discipleship. And we're working on some of those things right now. And then ultimately, in terms of the uttermost parts, a week from tonight, we're going to hear a report with Bob Amstutz. I'm going to ask Bob to come and give us another report about his recent trip to Haiti. 
And then we're also going to have my brother-in-law, Michael Walsh, and his wife, Amy, best sister, who are from the Republic of Ireland and have been there for over 25 years ministering. He started a church there, and they're going to be in town. And for that entire Sunday evening, a week from tonight, we're going to do all things missions. And we're going to see what's happening, what God is doing in faraway places. So we've got a responsibility here. We've got a responsibility a bit out there, and we've got a responsibility for a long way away from here. And this is exactly the plan and purpose of God. This is what Christ is all about. And what is Christ doing? Notice in verse 27, the disciples come back. They marvel that she was talking with a woman. Nobody said anything. So the woman, according to verse 28, left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, and what's the next word? Come. Come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? And they, that is the people, the people that she went and spoke to, the fellow Samaritans, they went out of the town, the town of Sychar, and were what? Coming. Coming to him. You know, this is amazing. Look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 39. What are you seeking, verse 38 says. And they said to him, Rabbi which means, teacher, where are you going? And he said to, him, said to them in verse 39, Come, and you will see. And of course, this is a literal come. And then in chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come, come and see. You know, even though that's literal, and even though that woman of Sychar, the woman at the well, went and told the other townspeople about Christ and then they were coming, and all of those are literal coming? I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that in your witnessing ex- exploits to others, you need actually at some point to say to them, come to Christ. Come to Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God in human flesh. He is the one who is tabernacling with us. He is the one who comes to deliver us from our sins. And I invite you. No, I implore you. No, I beg you earnestly. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. I mean, you've, you've been given a context in every one of your spheres of influence. Everybody is around unbelievers, right? They're all around us. In fact, they outnumber us in major ways. And because God's given us a context, the world in which we live, the cities in which we live and work, we have an opportunity to make a connection with them. And when we make a connection, we can communicate the gospel, the good news. And what kind of gospel is that? It's a gospel that talks about the bad news, including confronting a world who has sinned against this God and walked away from Him, their Creator. And when we talk to them about that bad news of sin, we tell them also about the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And when we talk to them about the Christ, we also encourage them to come to Christ. You come as a beggar. You come as a person stripped of your pride. You come as a person who's acknowledging their sin and who says, I must, like this woman at the well, do something about my serial sin nature. 
And when I do, I come to the only one who has the solution for the human dilemma. And that's Christ. Two more. Two more C's. Let's call this one commission. Commission. And what is that commission? Here it is. Verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat! But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Well, they don't know what he's saying. They don't understand that. And frankly, if we didn't have spiritual eyes and ears, we wouldn't understand that either. What's he talking about? What kind of food is he referring to? Uh, he told us to go into town and buy some food, and we've come back, and we've, su- we've said, here's the food, and you're talking to this lady, a lady that I wouldn't ever talk to, and you're talking to her about things that we don't really understand, and if Jesus were to have told them, I'm talking to her about living water, they say, what does that mean? Did you find some place? like this well in which to get your your thirst quenched Uh, what about the food and he says I have food that you know not of and of course they say tilt overload doesn't compute I don't understand what does this mean and the disciples said to one another verse 33 has anyone brought him something to eat (laughs) and Jesus said to them verse 34 my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see the word accomplish there? It's the word telaio, and it means to finish. And does that ring a bell for you? When Jesus was on that cross, and when he was dying on that cross, and when the Bible says he voluntarily gave up his life on that cross, he said what? It is finished. To die. It is finished. The work has been accomplished. So the very thing he says, and now is, is the beginning of that journey. And when he says on the cross, it is finished, it is the end of that earthly journey of dying for sinners like you and like me. You say, well, what's significant about that? You know what's significant about that? Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5. There's this ringing theme throughout the Gospel of John about this accomplishment, this finishing, this doing of the work of the Father. And in John chapter 5, verse 36, the Bible says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to what? To accomplish the very works that I am doing. And you know what one of those works was? talking to the woman at the well, evangelizing her, speaking a word of the good news to her. That was one of those works. And he's accomplishing that work. Look at John chapter 17. This is is the work of Christ. We could call it, this is the commission of the Father to Christ. John 17, verse 4. I glorified you on earth having accomplished, finished the work that you gave me to do. He's coming at the end. This is right before the cross. He's praying to the Father. I've not let any of these disciples fail except the one, Judas, 
who was predestined to fail. I've not lost any of the others. I've glorified you on earth. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I've done it, Father. And then look at chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, accomplished, said, I thirst. And then verse 30, as I quoted it earlier, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He's got work to do. He's got an accomplishment. He's got a mission. He's got a commission. And as the Father gave the Son the commission to do the works that the Son was supposed to do to accomplish His work, so we have been given a commission. And Jesus calls it here, my food. My food. And that may actually be a reference all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, that says this, quoted, of course, in, Mark, or in Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4, 4, man does not live by what? Bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's my work. And you know what he's saying to the disciples? Look, I know we're all hungry. We've traveled 40 miles. You've gone into Sychar to bring food back. But I'm telling you right now, even though you're hungry, and even though I'm hungry, I have greater work to do. This woman and her townspeople. That's my work. That's my mission. I mean, the single-minded focus and direction of the Lord Jesus is stunning. He's got work to do. He can't be dissuaded and distracted by other things. Maybe even sometimes the idea of the physical food that nourishes the body. He says, I've got spiritual work to do. I've got food. I've got a a harvest. And he even gives that great metaphor. Do you not say, verse 35, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look! Look! I tell you, you want to harvest all of this food, all of the crops for your bodies? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In a sense, he might be saying something like this. Look at the people. They're coming. They're coming from Sychar, just like you just did. You went in to get food so that you can come back and fill your bodies. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But look, there are people walking beside you with their white coats of harvest on. They're ready. They're ripe. The harvest is here. They're ready for you. Verse 36, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for what? For eternal life. He just told her, I'm going to give you living water for eternal life. Now he's changing the metaphor. Here's the harvest, and here's my actual food. Here's what I'm all about. Here's what consumes me. Here's what I love to eat. What I'm consumed about is not the food for my body. What I'm concerned about are the souls and their spiritual needs, and we're reaping a harvest. We're reaping a harvest. The sower and the reaper, he says, may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Who's the one who's sowing? Jesus. Right here. He's the one sowing. Who else is going to reap? The disciples. He's going to say, go out and talk to them, just like I'm talking to them. Answer their questions. Communicate Christ to them. Tell them who I am. 
Tell them what I've done. Tell them what I will do. This is the harvest, men. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. Who labored? The Old Testament prophets. Who labored? John the Baptist. Who labored? Jesus. Guys, you haven't done anything yet. It's just the beginning. But I'm telling you, the harvest is ripe. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. By the way, the word labor is used in the later part of our New Testaments for the idea of laboring and preaching. Kapiao, working hard, laboring for the sake of communicating the gospel. And he turns this metaphor about food and about harvest into ministry. And he's actually saying, men, you too are on a mission and I send you on a mission Notice verse 38. I sent you to reap. I'm sending you out, men. You're my apostles. You're the ones who are going to be sent with a message. And you've got a great commission. And the apostles have sent us, and we have a great commission. It's called Matthew 28, 18 to 20, right? It's Luke 24. It's Acts 1. We've all been given the missionary commission of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's a white field unto harvest. That's why this room ought to be jam-packed with people over time. We ought to have the great problem saying, we can't meet here anymore. Too many people who are ripe unto harvest, and the Lord is giving them to us to nurture them and communicate the gospel to them and to provide this connection and then this confrontation about sin and to give them Christ and ask them to come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, we tell them, now you've been commissioned, now you've got to go out. Now you've got to bring in this ripe harvest. It's ready. All of these people are here. Come on. Let's do our laboring. We've been sent. That's the commission we've been granted. And you know what? It doesn't end there. One final C. Let's call it confession. Confession. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town did what? Believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. There's the commission. It's working right there. She's telling others about what she's just experienced. There's the commission in action. There's this woman evangelist. Here she is. And she told all the townspeople all that that Jesus said she did in her life. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, there's another coming, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Why? Because the fields are ripe unto harvest. He stays two more days because there's so many people. It's like fish in the net. When they pull them inside, they can't contain the netted fish. It's too many of them. So you've got to stay and you've got to stay longer and you've got to keep laboring and you've got to keep preaching. And he stayed there for two more days. And with the result, verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard, they heard the gospel, we've heard it for ourselves, and we know it's penetrated into their hearts. And what is their common confession? This is indeed the Savior of the world. That's our common confession. Jesus is the Savior. That's amazing. There's a context and a connection and a communication and a confrontation bringing the person of Christ and inviting people to come to Christ and then receiving a great commission 
so that we could have a common confession. How successful was this? We close with this. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Turn there. And we'll close with this. It's amazing. How successful was this commissioning? I'll tell you how successful it was. Acts 8, 4. Now those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching Preaching the word. Philip, there's one of these evangelists in the early church. Philip went down to the city of, where was this? Samaria. And proclaimed to them the Christ. See, it wasn't done, it wasn't completed, it wasn't finished. Just because Jesus spoke to one woman and she spoke to townspeople, it's Sychar, yes, but it's the district of Samaria, it's the whole of Samaria, and it's not just Judea and Samaria, it's the uttermost parts. Verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Praise God. They were obedient. I know you want to be obedient. I know it's also very hard. It's fearful. It's frightening to talk to people about the gospel. But Jesus has given us eight tremendous principles here. And if we follow these principles, we can trust God for the results, right? Let's pray together. Father, we do want to trust you with the proclamation of the gospel. It is fearful to us. We're fearful of rejection. We're fearful of what to say, how to answer objections. We're fearful of being stumped. We don't quite always know exactly what to say when the JW has come to our door. We don't know what to say if we were to talk to someone in a grocery store or a service station or a a shop of some kind, but Lord, we have friends and neighbors and others for whom we've developed a long-term relationship. And we need your boldness to tell them about the cross. And we will and we do because we love you. And we have been given this commission. And indeed our confession is, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. May we do that. Being obedient to your commission. And may we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not only by our lives, but also by our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if